0: Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello,
1: I'm Sean Bullard. And I'm James Poss. Together, we're Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat is a weekly podcast that gets top-caliber guests and drills down on the most important topics in the drone world. Sean, what are we covering this month?
2: Well, James, we're covering a big one this month, small UAS operations over people. The FAA released a notice of proposed rulemaking on their operation of small unmanned aircraft systems over people, and we're going to discuss the research behind the rule, the FA Pathfinder on ops over people, potential mitigation measures that might allow drones to fly over people with the new rules, and the potential impacts to the commercial drone industry.
1: Okay, so you're the government relations expert. What is an NPRM and how does it fit into the overall FAA rulemaking
2: process? Uh, So, James, that's a really good question. An NPRM is a notice of proposed rulemaking, and it's the midway point in the federal agency rulemaking process. The FAA has already decided it needs a rule for ops over people and convened a panel of experts called an Aviation Rulemaking Committee, or ARC, to advise them on drafting this rule.
1: Okay, so I was on that ARC back when I was executive director of Assure, the FAA's Drone Research Center of Excellence. Right. Uh, you know, we, we published a report way back in April of 2016. Why has it taken nearly three years to draft rules on Ops Over People?
2: So the, that's not really a normal timeline. Uh, the FAA wanted to publish a notice of proposed rulemaking on Ops Over People way back in December of 2016, eight months after the ARC. But the draft rules hit a snag during the interagency coordination process. DHS, DOD refused to coordinate on the rules until the FAA made rules for the remote identification of small UAS. Yeah, so, so they didn't want UAS flying over people routinely until they could identify who was flying what drone and where they were flying.
1: Okay, so that, that part makes sense. But so what happens now that they're moving again? What happens after this NPRM? So
2: the FAA gathers public comments on the proposed rule until April the 15th. I know that's tax day, not, yeah, a, not okay. a great day. Yeah, uh, But then it reviews the comments and coordinates their draft of the final rule with other federal agencies. We hope the FAA will take six to nine months to coordinate the rule, get it to OMB or the Office of Management and Budget, and they'll do a final review, usually the most stringent review. And then it gets presented to both houses of Congress, the House and the Senate, and then the GAO or the General Accounting Office uh, takes a good stab at it. And it's published in the Federal Register.
1: Okay, that does not sound like a short process How long does all that stuff take?
2: So, you know, um, that's the $64,000 question right now.
1: Which is about what you charge for answering those questions, Sean. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, the basic small UAS rules or Part 107 rules themselves sat at OMB for years before approval. Uh, We've already seen these ops over people rules held over at least two years now during the interagency review process. It didn't
1: even make it to OMB. Uh, previously, okay. That's
2: well, you know, I I would hope, and a lot of folks that both you and I have spoken to and know, we would hope the FA would listen to the public and maybe change a few things. If there's a lot of well reasoned opposition to the proposal or some of the provisions, um, you know, we we need to just kind of keep in mind, or at least there's a sense that during the review process, other major federal agencies like DoD, DH, and DOJ. Um, could uh, get input also. And and so it's not just public input that's going on right now. It's also from other federal agencies. And so the the FAA may have to respond to some of those concerns.
1: But they don't have to. Uh, they no, can ignore they all that. Okay. So it's got in uh, perspective there. Uh, okay. So we're not going to have enough time to discuss all the rule in detail, but what are the basics of the proposed rule?
2: Sure. Good question. So the rules allow drone ops over people in three categories. Uh, it's it's category one allows ops over people for any drone under 0. 0.55 pounds. Pretty light. Yeah, pretty light. Uh, category two allows ops over people if a drone can mitigate impact with a stationary object to 11 pounds of kinetic energy transferred and doesn't have open rotating parts that can lacerate human skin. Okay,
1: And we're going to – Dave, Art, we're going to explain all that, so don't don't worry about eleven <laughs> foot
2: pounds and all that's, that, that. That's why we have our guest on today's show. Uh, this is designed to permit operations with a low probability of causing a serious energy injury to people. Category 3 allows ops over people for any drone that can mitigate impact with a stationary object to 25 pounds of kinetic energy transferred and operates over a closed work area. Doesn't operate for a sustained period over people in the open or over any open air assembly of people. It's designed to permit a low probability severe injury
1: so that's like a closed movie set or a building site right for that category three stuff
2: yeah yeah exactly exactly
1: okay all right so reasonable men and women can differ over the uh, energy transfer numbers and i know we'll be discussing that in detail today but that makes sense to me you know we can just talk about the numbers and the methodology sounds good they slip something in there the last minute that right. does not make sense what right, was right right
2: right so so the, the 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 loudest um kind of uh, raincore that uh, we've heard is that uh for some reason uh the FAA prohibited drone ops over moving vehicles and and that one took i would say both of us here by surprise
1: what everyone that Yeah, pretty much everyone
2: within this space from California to Florida to Mississippi to New York to North Dakota. And so it never came up in the arc or anywhere else before the MPRM.
1: Okay. All right. So that all makes sense. So we've got a good review of what the rulemaking process is, what the rule itself. Um, Seeing as how we're still in the public comment phase and we are until the 15th April, hopefully we'll be able to get this episode out before the 15th um sean and i have decided to give the man responsible for the research behind the rule of the first word on ops over people because research rules are the best one right sean yes. you don't want to just make Most things certainly. up so our guest today is dave arterburn of the university of alabama in huntsville lead assured researcher for small uas ground impact studies uh, dave leads a team of researchers in huntsville mississippi state university the university of kansas and Embry Riddle aeronautical Re- uh, university Investigate what happens when a small drone strikes a person or a structure on the ground. And uh, Dave is a good friend of mine. He's a West Point graduate and uh, a Army helicopter test pilot, which is particularly dangerous because, as we all know, those things don't have ejection seats. So, Dave, welcome to Drone Beat. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, well, you're more than welcome to get here. Okay, uh, before we start, could you please just tell us a little bit about yourself and the the, the Assure team that's working UAS ground impact research.
3: Well, Jim, so I'm uh, the principal investigator, as you uh, indicated, for the ground collision severity research uh, that Assure is doing as part of the FAA UAS Center of Excellence. Um, The Sure team is uh, helping the FAA with research-based information so that they can inform the decision makers on actual data as they uh, make the rules. And so our focus here is to provide that uh, grounded research that uh, informs rulemaking. And uh, our team, uh, you mentioned a a bunch of the team from the first study, but we also have Ohio State University uh, on the current team. Uh, as well as uh, Mississippi State, uh, and we have uh, Wichita State. The National Institute for Aviation Research was on both studies as well.
2: So, Dave, could you explain your research? And I understand that this is a two phase effort, and you've only completed phase one. Is that correct?
3: That's correct. So, phase one was completed in uh, October of 17. Uh, and that report was published, uh, was the first Assure report to be publicly released, uh, it was briefed to Congress as uh, congressional staff uh, prior to the public release. Uh, but that first effort was intended to provide the FAA with what are current rules that they could potentially adopt, what are current uh, standards that potentially be adopted to uh, and look at the MicroArc uh, final report and the injury potential of drones. Now, we were only focused on the collision severity portion of a risk-based problem. We were not focused on probability. However, we saw the need to at least express probability as part of that risk-based uh, reports. On the first report, we covered uh, a little bit of risk, but uh, really focused on what were the injury mechanisms, and what was the um, rubric that we needed to use in order to break down all the potential injury uh, mechanisms that uh, small UAS could impose on the public uh, as part of their operations. The second phase was an extension of the first phase. However, because the scope was very limited uh, and largely UAH funded on their own a series of tests uh on phantom three drones which actually were impacted against uh anthropometric test dummies uh we 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 uh pushed that forward to with the faa to expand the number of drones to where we w- looked at over 16 different multi-rotors and fixed-wing aircraft and we also in addition to crash dummy testing. Have also completed uh, uh, impact testing on post mortem human subjects, more commonly referred to as cadaver tests.
1: Cool. Okay. So I got to admit that uh, we do have some homework for this episode for our, our listeners out there. We want you to, to go to the FAA website, and we'll have the link here and read the NPRM before the next episode. Also, as Dave mentioned, his phase one research, which is just one drone, a DJI a Phantom 4. Uh, going against one test type of test subject, which is a crash dummy. That research is public. It has been public for a while. There's a great summary briefing that we'll put a link to. And if you're really motivated, you can read the whole thing. It's, it's great research. Um, now, uh, Dave, you and I were on the ARC for Ops Over People. and I know you took direction from the ARC to establish a baseline for your research. Did the ARC findings and guidance from the FAA really guide you in your research? Is this research designed to come up with a good ops over people rule?
3: So our research was not designed to uh, reinforce what the ARC decided. Our research was designed as the hypothesis was this appropriate standards For minimizing risk over people. So, the injury potential mechanisms that were picked for category two and category three operations, those were the focus of our efforts because those largely impact commercial operations more than any. And this and the current flight over people rule is focused on category two and category three operations. So, our focus was against the uh, abbreviated injury scale level three or severe serious injury. Um, area that was chosen by the ARC. And it's important to note in the ARC, one of the encumbering factors with the ARC was during that proceeding, there was no clear understanding of probability that the ARC committee was able to use. And so the ARC's final report was focused on severity and probability of a certain class of injury that was largely taking out, taken out of the committee's deliberations, without really any consideration for the probability that a strike would actually occur.
1: occur. Okay, so basically, the, the arc was thinking there was a hundred percent chance of a strike on a person, and not a more realistic, you know,
3: that's correct. Chance. And the current okay. rule is focused in that direction. The other portion of our first phase of research was focused on the range commander's council uh, guides. That was. Largely been used by the military on the national test ranges to look at safety calculations for debris falling from missiles that are self-destructed or things that come apart in flight and what their potential injury it could be to people on the ground, and that's largely been the focus of also commercial space uh, probability standards. That uh, many of those things are rooted in this current NPRM, but Our our initial research showed very much that uh, one statement I like to use is drones are not bricks; they're not rocks falling out of the sky. They have flexibility and they have don't nearly have the same injury potential when they strike a person. That doesn't mean that's not to say that they're completely safe, but there is a complete difference between a metal object falling out of the sky and a drone falling out of the sky, especially the small plastic drones that are. Dominate the market, up to ten, ten or fifteen pounds.
1: Okay, so the range commander's guidance um, was set up for you know guys that are running ranges at Edwards or Eglin or something like that, and it was for solid objects. You know, a, a, a piece of a jet engine from a crashing test plane, or a missile warhead, or something. Hitting the ground, and uh, it was set up to give commanders um, guidance on what area to clear, so they just assumed everything was solid object like a bullet that was going to hit, and we needed to get people on the ground out of the way for that. Is that an accurate description
3: that 's correct the The focus of the study that was done in I believe in one thousand nine hundred and ninety six was at Sandia Labs was uh, focused on the type of metal objects that fall off the largely tungsten aluminum. Uh, in some case steel, but all of them were rigid impactors. And so they relied on studies that were done during some early injury metrics after World War II that were largely looked at what happens when you have a nuclear strike and debris is flying across the ground, or if you have an explosion from an ammunition depot, how far out do you need to separate the public From those bunkers in order to ensure that you have, that nobody is going to be injured or the risk is very low. So those studies and those anthropometric studies were largely taken from those early studies. And what we found was that the drone impacts do not mirror those kinds of strikes. And so as a result of that, that's why we commissioned the testing of Phantom 3s against ATDs to go look at how they compared to wood blocks. And so we took wood blocks as rigid impactors and we've continued to use wood blocks as rigid impactors uh, because they have no gift. In fact, we've used four by four by four uh, wood blocks that are the same weight as a Phantom 3 and dropped them in the same manner at the same speeds as the Phantom 3 and compared them directly. And in our public release and in the first report, uh, there's a clear discussion of how range commander's counsel's uh, probability of injury and probability of fatality correlate very well with the wood block, but they correlate very poorly with drone attacks.
1: Okay, well, we've got to take a break right now, but when we get back, um, I understand you looked at another standard, and we talked about it a little bit, the automotive standard that has a much more realistic uh, depiction of an object um, when it hits something, you know, a car, which is, uh, they didn't assume to be a, you know, a solid metal bullet falling out of the sky, but, you know, a car made of, you know, different types of aluminum and all that kind of good stuff. So, Dave, let's take a break now, and we'll come back, and if you could tell us the difference between a bullet hitting you and a more realistic depiction of uh, something hitting you because it's very important to explain the methodology behind these rules. So let's go ahead and take a break.
0: Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rodian Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW, satellite technology, avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rodian Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com.
1: Okay, and we're back. And uh, before the break, uh, we talked about um, how uh, the range commander's guidance assumed everything was a bullet falling from the sky. Uh, and you found out that was not a realistic uh, depiction of how drones worked. And then we were going to kind of discuss how uh, automotive regulators look at, uh, at uh, impacts. Can you delve into that a little bit, Dave?
3: So the automotive industry, uh, in terms of assessing crash and, and safety standards for the automotive industry, they've used an abbreviated injury scale, which was also used by the ARC to define the what they felt was appropriate uh, injury metrics or uh, for uh, both Category 2 and Category 3 operations. Um, the abbreviated injury scale is a scale that's used by uh, physicians and emergency medicine personnel that uh, typically treat these injuries and see these victims after car accidents, and they assess each injury individually against a uh, one through six scale, one being no no clear injury all the way up to six being unsurvivable. And three is a serious injury, and that serious injury is where the microarc focused its energy. And that definition is about eight to ten percent probability of fatality in that range. Uh, but then the ARC recommended for category three operations thirty percent probability of an AIS three injury, and then for category two operations, it was um, I believe ten percent probability of an AIS three injury. So the two operations and the two separated were separated largely because category two was the non-participating public, where they were not involved. They're just walking around in the public domain. And and the AIS, the Category 3 is, they're aware that the drone's falling around. They have some awareness it's there, and it's a controlled environment. So, uh, that's why the higher injury potential seemed appropriate for the Category 3 operation to the members of the microorg. So that standard that we looked at, we focused ourselves on what is the threshold that drone operators could potentially test to and have a realistic standard for evaluating injury potential drones using that 30% probability of an AIS-3 injury as that benchmark.
2: Okay, so Dave, realistically, with those different approaches in mind, what did your Phase One research say about the danger of drone impact to people? And and for our audience and our listeners, we're we're going to put a link to the Assure research on our Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat website. But kind of back into kind of layman's terms, what was what was what was what 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 did you find where? Uh, from the research about the the danger of the of the drone impact to people,
3: so what we found was is that using the eight the uh, the anthropometric test dummies or crash test dummies as people like to call them, um, we found that uh, drones because of their flexibility uh, could impact at dramatically higher injuries than uh, at higher energy levels. Uh, kinetic energy levels and not cause the same level of injury as a rigid impactor.
1: Okay. So that means if you use that range commander guidance, which assumed everything was a bullet, you get tremendous damage. But if you used um, other methodology, you found out you really didn't get that much damage when you crash an actual drone into one of these crash dummies.
3: Right. So we used a skull fracture metric, which skull fracture is one of the definitions. You had to find a way to correlate the range commander's council information with stuff that was in the abbreviated injury scale metric that was used by the microarc because they're not direct. One uses fa- kinetic energy against fatality. The other one uses kinetic energy, or you just uses a type of injury that Actually occurs. Okay, so you but just the pick skull is, right? So we the, the, the automotive industry has developed testing metrics that say if you have peak acceleration when you hit the ATD of let's use one hundred and ninety eight Gs as the example, Ooh, okay. um, <laughs> that becomes the threshold for AIS three injury level. So we use that threshold and we compared a impact. When does uh, solid, rigid impactor cross that threshold versus when does a drone cross that threshold? Cross the threshold to
1: cause a skull fracture, right? To
3: cause a skull fracture, right? So we selected 198 Gs based on some research done by Dr. Yogan and in in Wisconsin, who was also one of the briefers at the MicroArc, briefing his work on uh, actual cadaver testing that he had done. Uh, that we hadn't done at the time in the phase one research. So we used the lowest levels that he selected, which was 198G, and we said, we're going to use this metric. We didn't say that was the absolute metric. We just said, this appears to be an appropriate metric for skull fracture, which is an AIS-3 level injury. And we we showed that a phantom three could impact an ATD in a vertical impact at as high as 181 foot-pounds whereas the and to cause that 198g acceleration, whereas a rigid object would cross that threshold at 22 foot-pounds of impact
1: energy. Okay, so that's an important thing. And that 22 foot-pounds is what we ended up with in the regulation, even though that's a way low figure that your phase one research showed. Did I get that's that right?
3: Correct. And so the... <laughs> 20, the 11-foot-pounds actually comes from the risk-based analysis that's used for commercial space, which is their first cut analysis for doing injury metrics. But what's interesting about that is that 11-foot-pounds that's in the NPRM um, also is really defined, includes a, a, a ca- injury or casualty expectation or a probability that goes along with that level of injury. Where in the drone world, if we're given that 11 foot-pounds, it's assumed that there's 100% probability you're always going to hit. So all of the uh, responsibility for reducing injury isn't in the way you operate or where you operate or the probability of where you operate. A probability of a collision actually occurring, it's all residing with how much injury can a drone Cause when it actually
2: okay, okay. So Dave, you you you've got me here. And so, just can you can you tell me, does that equate to a low probability of a severe injury? You know, are these numbers too high? Are they too low?
1: Just based on your phase one research.
3: Well, based on the phase one research, and even if the public wants to go out, we have uh, sure has a thirty-six page public comment out against the NPRM that's publicly released that the community can go look at um, that's out on the website and we will give that Jim I'll give that to you and Sean you bet you can Great. publish it with our report Good. Uh, the, the identifier they find and in there they can get a glimpse of uh, the phase two research and how these particular metrics compare with actual because our goal was to how do you actually how does industry actually test to show that they meet those standards because it's impossible to determine 11 foot-pounds of transferred energy. You can calculate 11 foot-pounds just prior to impact, but how much gets transferred is, is one of the holy grails of science and trying to figure out exactly that energy transfer. We'd rather use more realistic, consistently applied standards-based metrics that are based off automotive industry and a lot of our testing that show where the low threshold, where this 30% probability of an AIS-3 level shows in our phase two research and when it's published, you'll also get to see where the cadaver data shows and the bottom line is the numbers are dramatically higher okay. than the 11 or 25-foot-pound
1: so numbers. When is your phase two research coming out? And let me summarize phase two research. Phase one, one drone versus those you know crash dummies that you see in the commercials. Phase two was how many drones?
3: He tested over 18 different 18 vehicles,
1: different drones
3: six wing uh, vehicles as well as multi-rotors
1: okay so 18 different vehicles versus actual dead bodies which I guess is going to give you a much more accurate result out there when is that phase two research coming out
3: Well 18 vehicles weren't tested against the cadavers there were only uh, about five or six vehicles tested against oh, okay, the cadavers gotcha. themselves but the, the, the ATD data is extent is much more extensive. And so, we expanded the AT. It's very expensive to do, and it's very time-consuming to do a lot of cadaver work. We think that the FAA needs to continue and do more of this cadaver work in the future uh, to continue to refine the standard. But we believe we've developed some very consistent uh, metrics that can be used that can consistently be tested against ATDs or a simplified method rather than have... Requiring every industry member to go out and do cadaver testing, we think that the standard can be applied against ATDs in a very reasonable cost uh, to be able to certify their vehicles for category two or category three operations. Okay, so. In a more realistic way than the 11 and 25
2: foot. Yeah, so that, 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 even if you stick with just your phase one results, what does the research say about the Category 2 and 3 impact numbers?
1: Yeah, so, you know, 11 foot-pounds of kinetic energy transferred, you know, what what does that equal? I mean, we, we've talked about comparing that to pitches in Little League. So what is that 11 pounds of kinetic energy transferred and 25 pounds of kinetic energy transferred? So 11
3: foot-pounds foot of, of transferred energy when you just consider a ridge. I like to use baseball because everybody has a child that plays baseball, most people in the – in the United States, of the like baseball or softball,
2: or you've been hit with a baseball, <laughs> or you've been hit by a baseball
3: that's been pitched. Well, the the eleven foot pound energy is about the equivalent of a eleven u little league team. The fastest pitch recorded. Now that was taken from data that was from a speed gun that uh, uh, was published, where uh, an author went around and he he looked at all the different. He went to a number of different. Uh, little League games and recorded pitches. And he recorded these were the fastest pitches in the different leagues that he recorded. And so 11 foot pounds about an 11 U Little League team, whereas a 25 foot pound impact is about a 14 U.
1: Okay, so the 11 pound is with an 11 year old hitting you with a pitch, and the 25 pound is uh, with a 14 year old hitting you with a pitch okay, I you know, having been on an eleven and fourteen year old hit by pitches uh, i I survived both of them, so that tells me that that's uh, pretty low stuff
3: so i don't wanna I don't wanna belittle the fact that injuries can occur in these things when kids are impacted. that's why we let them wear helmets and other things, but it's very different in in the environment where these levels are very low and they don't cause in fifty percentile males where this is where the FAA does their rulemaking space. Um, it's a very different injury level when you consider those levels with 50% damage.
2: So, Dave, uh, let me ask you as we as we wrap up here, and thank you so much for having uh, for you being on the show today. If you could write the rules to encompass both reasonable public safety and and make them viable for the commercial drone industry, what? What what changes or what one change would you make?
3: The one change that I would make in the rule is uh, publish standards other than this transfer of energy aspect that they put in this current rule. Publish standards that can be measured on an ATD, where there can be consistent and standardized testing for the entire community that defines the injury level that the FAA. Is comfortable with. And I think our data shows those levels, shows where and allows them to make good decision-making uh, around those levels that doesn't overly burden the drone industry uh, and will allow commercial operations to flourish, especially for flight over people and beyond visual line of sight. Uh, an example is we show two vehicles that are widely used uh, by industry, and I won't say their name here, Um, but they're published in our follow-on report, uh, is that there's two vehicles that are out there and widely used. People will know them by name when it gets published, but that don't rise to the level of even an AIS-3 injury over their full envelopes. And so why should those folks immediately be able to get a blanket waiver for flight over people, and one of them has very consistently been used in recent first responder and emergency operations recently that we've published our data in support of a commercial operator to be able to use that vehicle for extended flight over people. And the FAA has proved that operation. So wow. our research is being used. The FAA is using our research. It's just unfortunate that this rule came out before our latest research was published.
1: Okay. Dave, we're running out of time, but I just got to ask you one question. And, uh, and sorry to not give you much time to answer it, but what about the prohibition on flights over moving vehicles? Have have you ever researched that? Has that ever come up in any discussion with the FAA or did that come out of nowhere?
3: So we have not been commissioned to do any work in that regard, but the issue as I understand it was uh, one of these government agencies, department of transportation raised concern about uh, increasing the risk to automotive uh, operations. And so Some work needs to be done. It's a little surprising that the waivers they've submitted for 90-degree crossing of roads isn't where they went with this new rule to minimize the time drones are over uh, over highways. But uh, it's a little surprising that it was put in as prohibition.
1: No kidding. Okay. Well, Dave, I'm afraid we're out of time, but thank you so much for your interesting insight into research behind uh, Ops Over People rules. You've really inspired us to break new ground for drone beat in this episode, and we're going to assign our listeners homework for the first time. So (laughs) we'll have all of this uh, on our website, but uh, there'll be a link to the NPRM Ops Over People rule and a link to your um, phase one research, and we're hoping your phase two research will uh, come out uh, uh, very soon. But thank you so much. What are we going to cover next episode, Sean?
2: We'll have Lisa Ellman from the Commercial Drone Alliance on to discuss what commercial drone operators think about the proposed rules and assure research. Lisa represents some of the biggest names in the commercial drone market, Apple, CNN, AT&T. So I'm sure she'll give us some great insights.
1: Well, folks, this concludes Episode 5 of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'd like to thank our guest, Dave Arterburn of the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and wish him the best of luck on peer review of his Phase two research. We can't wait to see it. Thanks, folks.
0: That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.